right, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. Verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. And Jesus departed from there and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet. And he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see. And they glorify the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. And his disciples, they say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few little fish. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes, and he gave thanks and brake them, and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken food that was left seven baskets full. And in the Greek, the basket is a, is a large basket. It's the kind of basket they lowered Paul down out of the city wall as opposed to the feeding of the 5,000, the basket there is actually a different word, and it's a smaller basket. And they did eat, and were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, took ship, and came into the coast of Magdala. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we approach to your word with ears, Lord, to hear, may you tune us to hear your voice. May you cause us this morning to be filled with your Holy Spirit and to hear from heaven and not just from men and to, Lord, be drawn in to what you are doing and how you have revealed yourself to us. Help us not to miss this for the world. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. The book of Matthew, according to Charles Erdman, scholar who's now passed away, was written to demonstrate the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, or is the Christ, the predicted Messiah, the King of the Jews, 
who had been rejected by his own nation, who was being accepted by the Gentiles, and who someday was to return in power and great glory. Erdman says this is, this is what the book of Matthew is about. This is why Matthew wrote it, to show these things. The book of Matthew is not a mere biography of Jesus. A mere biography of Jesus. A biography relays the facts of one's life, and a biography can be written even by someone who's hostile um, to the person that they're writing about, right? So you can have someone who writes a biography of someone they really don't like. But the book of Matthew is called the Gospel of Matthew, the good news according to Matthew, because Matthew's not just relaying bare facts. Matthew is preaching Jesus. Matthew is a man who's been changed by Jesus. He's a man who saw Jesus with his own eyes and was transformed by Jesus, and he wants everyone to know. He wants us to know. That's why he writes. The eyewitness account of what Matthew saw. Good news. Jesus, today, is just as controversial as he was in the first century Jesus is the most talked about man in history. There's, there's no one else in all of history that men have spent so much time and energy discussing and trying to understand. And if you want to know about Jesus, you have to go straight to the horse's mouth. You have to go back to the New Testament if you want to know about Jesus. And what you find is when you go to the New Testament, brothers and sisters, is not that you just learn about Jesus. And I hope that's not what we're doing when we read about Jesus in Matthew. I hope that's not what happens when you read the New Testament. We don't just learn about Jesus, but we come to know Jesus personally when we read the New Testament, right? Because what do we, what do we find out when we look at the New Testament? What do we find out when we read the gospel according to Matthew? We find out that Jesus lives. You can come to know him because he's not just some historical figure who died and someone is writing a biography about him. But they're preaching about him because he lives. He's alive. We're reading about someone who you can know right now, personally, and someone who loves you exquisitely. Isn't that amazing? This is who Jesus is, according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke and John, according to Paul, Peter, Jude, all the writers of the New Testament who knew him. They said he lives, and he loves us. Matthew tells us, who is Jesus? Jesus is the predicted Messiah. That is, before Jesus even came, before this person came in history, the prophets of old foretold of his coming. And there's all these prophecies that Matthew points us to. Jesus is the son of David. That is, God promised David that a son would come and reign forever on the throne. Matthew's saying, this is Jesus. The old prophet said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Matthew tells us, guess where Jesus was born? He was born in Bethlehem, exactly where the Messiah should have been born. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the one whom God will send to rule will be born of a virgin. And Matthew tells us Jesus was born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary who had no relations with any man and was found to be with child, with the Messiah. Another thing Matthew tells us about is that he explains why Jesus was rejected. 
Because Matthew's writing at a time when Christianity is being preached and people are believing it and it's spreading all over the world. And the Jewish people have largely rejected the preaching of Jesus. And the main objection that the Jewish people have is, well, if he was the Messiah, he wouldn't have been rejected by Israel. And if he was the Messiah, then the whole world would be at peace with itself right now. Matthew's writing is he explaining, let me explain to you that the Messiah is going to be rejected. He's explaining this. Jesus was rejected because of his message. Jesus came, and what we see in the Gospel of Matthew is him opposing and correcting the prevailing teachings in his day. And that got him into a lot of trouble. He was opposed and rejected because of his methods. Because of what Jesus taught, he also lived a different way. Because he taught a different way. He didn't require people to wash their hands. right? He didn't, he didn't stop healing people and doing good on the Sabbath day. And other practices that got him into trouble with the Pharisees. Even his miracles got him into trouble. Because they weren't in the box. They weren't according to what the Pharisees would have envisioned the Messiah would have been like. And what Jesus said about himself got him into trouble as well. Matthew tells us how Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead and how he has commissioned the preaching of the good news to all nations and how he's coming again in the future. Jesus himself spends quite a bit of time in Matthew talking about his future coming. This was something unheard of to the Jewish people in Matthew's day. So, in a sense, this book is, a, is, is preaching Jesus and defending Jesus against those accusations. People would say, hey, how can he be the Messiah? The Messiah comes once. And Matthew says, no, the Messiah comes twice. He was supposed to be rejected, just like the prophet said. But the Gentiles are accepting him and the Jews aren't. Yes, that's what the prophet said. And he's coming again in great power and in great glory. What Matthew shows us, brothers and sisters, is that God has an amazing plan that he is unfolding. A plan that, and a mystery that he has known from the foundation of the world. Something that he's even kept hidden and is now revealing it to us. The coming of the Messiah to save us from our sins, to be rejected, to ascend into heaven and come again. And we, you and I, are just as much a part of this plan as the apostles in the first century. Do you believe that? Do you think that you are just as much a part of God's program than the apostles in the first century? Well, that doesn't mean you're going to maybe do as much, but you're just as much a part of this big plan, this purpose that God created the world for. Right? God didn't just create the world willy-nilly and then is trying to figure out what to do with it now. God created the world with a purpose, and he knew you before he created it. You are a part of this plan. And let us not close our eyes and miss what this life and this earth and this existence is all about. Let's not get wrapped up in things that don't matter. Matthew invites us into this mysterious purpose of God, the glorious mysteries of the kingdom of God. Let us say yes. Let's read Matthew, not just as a biography, but see this as an invitation into life and into understanding God and his son. So let's do that this morning as we continue on in our study of Matthew. Let's look at Jesus and what he shows us about God and how we have a part in this. 
verse 21. Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus here with his disciples leaves Galilee and for the, for the first and only time in his ministry does he go into Gentile territory. That, that is, he literally leaves the boundaries of Israel and he goes into Gentile territory because obviously when he was a kid, he went to Egypt but during his ministry. And why does he go? It was not to minister. He did not go to Tyre and Sidon because he said, you know what, there's a whole bunch of people that don't know God there. There's a whole bunch of sick people there. There's a whole bunch of demon-possessed people there. Let's go over to Tyre and Sidon and do ministry. That's the opposite of why he went. Jesus went to get away. In Mark, in the, par- in the parallel passage in Mark, Mark tells us that when Jesus went into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he went into a house and desired that nobody would know he was there. So he basically was hiding in a house. Jesus had just had a serious confrontation with the Pharisees. If you remember six weeks ago, we looked at uh, the first part of Matthew chapter 15, and Jesus pulled out all the stops. He said to the Pharisees, Isaiah said, well of you, you draw near unto God with your mouth, but your hearts are far from him. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You teach doctrines of men, not the doctrines of God. You make void the law. Jesus pulled out all the stops in this serious confrontation with the Pharisees. And he wanted to get away. He couldn't go to Judea because Judea is where the Pharisees dominated. And he couldn't stay in Galilee because they had sent the Pharisees from Judea to Galilee to talk to him. And he wanted to get away. A.B. Bruce writes, he would breathe a freer, less stifling atmosphere there. Right? Get away from the legalism and take a rest. Spend time with his disciples. But it wouldn't be. Because as it happened, he could not find privacy. A woman of that area discovers that Jesus is there and comes to him. He's in the house. As Mark tells us, he's in the house. And this woman is basically yelling outside the house, Help me! Now, brothers and sisters, this episode in the life of Jesus is thought by many to be the most ugly episode in the life of Jesus that there is. One scholar said, Jesus' words to this woman are atrocious, racist, and unloving. And even many Christians, when they read this passage, they think this is an ugly passage because it almost is all about his unwillingness to help someone, right? Think about it. You've got a woman who has a daughter that's demon-possessed. She's wanting her daughter to be well, and she comes to Jesus. Isn't that the right thing to do? And Jesus doesn't even say anything to her. And then finally, when she presses and presses, he says, it's not appropriate for me to give food to the dogs. (laughs) Ugly? (laughs) That scholar thought so. And I think many Christians feel uncomfortable with this passage. But far from being the most ugly passage in the life of Jesus, or the most ugly episode in the life of Jesus, I believe that this is actually one of the most beautiful episodes in the life of Jesus. And in this passage, we're going to see the heart of Jesus and the love of Jesus for all men. And so, if we think it's ugly, it's because we don't understand what's going on here, okay? 
So I want to point out a few things in this passage that often get, gets overlooked. Number one, this woman that comes to Jesus is no average woman. This often gets overlooked. We think just some average woman who's got a demon-possessed daughter comes to Jesus and says, help me. Take a look at this woman. Verse 22. Behold, a woman of Canaan. Matthew tells us where she's from. He makes a point of saying she's a Canaanite. In the Greek, literally a Canaanite. A Canaanite. What are Canaanites? Canaanites aren't supposed to exist, right? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, Canaanites aren't supposed to exist. God sent Israel into the land of Canaan to destroy every male, woman, child, and sometimes their animals, so that no one in Canaan, no Canaanite would exist anymore, and he gave the land to Israel, and it wouldn't be called the land of Canaan anymore, it would be called the land of Israel, right? Now, of course, as the story goes, Israel goes into the land, they destroy a lot of cities, and they don't destroy every city, and that was sin, right? It was sin that they didn't destroy everyone. And so, for the rest of history, Canaanites still exist. So this woman's existence is in theological question. And believe me, as a Canaanite, as someone who lived in the land, in and around the land of Israel, who was a descendant of the people of Canaan, she would have known the stories. She would have known all about it, okay? She would have known that the Jewish people in their history came in to destroy them all, and they're not even supposed to be there according to God. She would have known, I am a part of the people who are meant to be destroyed by God. You see this? And therefore, it becomes extremely remarkable that she addresses Jesus as, verse 22, Lord, Son of David. Okay? You see, this woman is not just coming to Jesus as a magic healer. She doesn't just think, oh, I've heard of Jesus, he's a magic healer. He heals people. He can heal my daughter. And he's here. Okay. Hey, Jesus, healer, over here. She comes to him as the son of David. That means she says, when she says to him that you are the son of David, she's saying and acknowledging everything that's antithetical to her people. She's saying, you, God, first of all, is the God of Israel. And second of all, God did bring Israel into the land to destroy us. And God promised to David that he rule in the land of Israel and his son would rule in the land of Israel forever, and you are him. He, she is seeing Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, not just a, a magic healer. The land is yours. The destruction of my people was just. The kingdom of Israel will be established you are the son of David, and I am a Canaanite. You are the people of God, and I'm on the outside. See, this explains why she seems to understand Jesus' saying about how it's not fit to throw the food to the dogs. If an average woman with no understanding wouldn't 
have understood that. But yet, yeah, this is a, a remarkable woman, brothers and sisters. This is not an average woman. This is an outsider who's aware that she's an outsider, and she's aware that Jesus is the Messiah. That's an amazing thing. This is an amazing woman. And the disciples, they beseech Jesus to send her away. And we gather that they're actually telling Jesus, why don't you just heal her daughter so she'll leave us alone? The reason why we know this is because in verse 24, 24 is often thought that Jesus says it to the woman, but Jesus says it to the disciples. In 24, the woman doesn't hear this because she's probably still outside. In verse 23, the disciples came and said, Send her away, she cries after us. Jesus says, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the disciples were saying, just heal her. And he was saying, you don't understand. It's not that simple. I'm not sent to her. Have you ever done a good deed with a wrong motive? Have you ever done a good deed to someone to get them to go away from you? <laughs> That's kind of inconsistent, right? Because if you do a good deed for someone, it means you're loving them. And if you're loving them, the motive can't be get out of my face, right? Anyone can relate with the disciples? And the, the moral of this story, though, is not just that Jesus does good deeds for good reasons. It's deeper than this. As R.T. France, I think, points out extremely well, he says, there is a principle at stake here which must be worked out rather than ignored in favor of the line of least resistance. So yeah, the easy thing to do is just to heal the daughter and send her away, and the disciples want to take the easy way out. And Jesus, Jesus tells the disciples, there's a principle here that we have to work out. It's not just about convenience here. I'm not sent to help this woman. I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I am not sent, Jesus says. Think about it. Lots of people need help, don't they? Lots of people need healing and teaching in the Gentile world, but Jesus did not go to them. And it's not because Jesus didn't care about them. You know how much, you know, Jesus only stayed on the earth for how long? About, or about 33 years, right? His ministry was only about three years. Well, Lord, why didn't you stay for 50 years doing ministry? Why did you waste so much time in the carpenter shop? And why did you only spend three years ministering in a small place? You could have spent 50 years like the Apostle Paul, traveling all over the place, healing all sorts of people, teaching all sorts of people. Don't you care about these other people in the world? Of course Jesus cares about them. But there is a higher consideration in the mind of Jesus. He wasn't sent to do that. God has a plan, and soon enough, the commission will be given to go into all the world and to preach to every creature. But not yet. Because part of God's plan, in his timing, is to send Christ for a small three years of ministry in Israel, only to the house of Israel, to be rejected. And then the door would be open for the Gentiles. So this isn't a statement of his lack of care. But we need to understand Jesus didn't operate just on a humanistic level of, where's all the needs? I need to go meet the needs. Jesus operated based upon the Father's plan. And whatever the Father told him to do, he did. Brothers and sisters, I think that this woman represents, this remarkable woman, represents the Gentile world who is in great need of Christ. 
and has a readiness to receive him, a readiness that's even rare to be, rarely to be found in Israel. Within Israel, you seldom find, Jesus seldom found people who believed in him like this woman did. And so the Gentile world out there is in great need and even ready to receive Jesus. And Jesus at this moment, with this woman come to him, is confronted with this need of the Gentile world as a whole. And he wants to help her. But here's the thing. He cannot, or at least he cannot help her carte blanche or unqualifyingly. He can't just help her unqualifyingly. Otherwise, he'd compromise his mission because God sent him to Israel alone. He'd compromise God's plan and probably the Gentile crowds would hound him. Right? Hey, he healed me. He'll heal you too. And all the Gentiles then would come around him and that's not part of his mission. And I want to suggest to you that it is because Jesus wants to heal the woman that he says what he says to her in verse 26. Look at verse 26. This is the first time he speaks to her. And like I said, I want to suggest it is because he wants to help her that he says what he says. He says, It is not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. And you might say, huh? What do you mean that's because he wants to help her that he said that? Let me suggest to you what he might have said. No. I'm not sent to you. We know that he says this because he wants to help her for two reasons. Number one, he gives her this parable. And number two, he gives her this parable that has a loophole. First of all, if he, didn't, if, he wasn't, if he didn't want to help her, he wouldn't have given her this parable. He would have just said sharply, no, I'm, I'm not sent to you. What could she have said to that? Please? <laughs> I'm not sent to you. Can you make an exception? He could have shut, slammed the door on her by saying something different. But by saying this parable, which contains a loophole, doesn't it? It's not right to give the children's bread to dogs. Well, in that kind of a scenario, the dogs often still eat from the table, right? Whether the food falls off the table by accident or intentionally, the nature of the parable invites her response. He gives her the loophole. The woman may not have even known Jesus was leading her to do this or to say this, but she did see the loophole. Because the parable enabled her to see a loophole. And remember, he never had to say that. But he says, this parable, it is not me to take the children's bread to cast it to the dog. And the woman gets a bright idea. Bing! Hey, I know what I can say to that. <laughs> and she grasps hold of that loophole and says, that is true. That is true. And I'm not denying it. Isn't that an amazing thing that this woman says? She acknowledges her lowly place as a Gentile. She acknowledges that Jesus is the son of David and she's on the outside. How rare it is to find someone who would say this. People today and then hate to acknowledge that they are not the be-all and the end-all, right? What a thing to acknowledge, this is true, Lord. I am a dog under the table in the whole grand scheme of things. You were not sent to me. 
Amazing, amazing woman. But, Lord, the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I'm sure Jesus was happy that she got it. Because now he can, he can heal her daughter, which is what he wants to do. But he can do it in a way that's qualified. He can do it in a way that doesn't compromise his mission. He can do it in a way that doesn't send the message to this Gentile woman, I have come for the Gentiles, go get all of your neighbors. Jesus wanted this outcome. Yet he's still amazed by her faith. He's amazed because he finds so little of such faith in Israel itself. And what this shows us, brothers and sisters, is God's wisdom and the the wisdom of his timing. I want to suggest that if God had not focused in solely on Israel and passed over the Gentile world for so long, the Gentiles would probably never have such an attitude as this. But now the Gentiles are ready. So that when the Jewish people reject their own Messiah and the apostles are sent with the commission to preach into all the world, the Gentiles embrace this message in the majority. And what this whole story shows us it reveals to us God's amazing love for all people. Though he works in a limited way. You ever wonder, like, you ever wonder when you read the Bible and you see God working in a limited way and you see that he only goes to Israel and he ignores the rest of the world? Or maybe in your own experience in life, you notice, how come God is so limited? How come he blesses one person so much and not another? How come he doesn't just, you know, equally send it all to everyone? Why doesn't he just treat everyone equal? And what this story shows us is not that it's because God is unwilling or that he doesn't love all, because clearly he loves this woman, and clearly he wants to heal her. What it shows us is that when we see God working in a limited way, we are not to think that he doesn't love all equally. We are not to think that he doesn't care about everyone. But we're just to realize he's working in a limited way because of his plan and his wisdom. It's not a lack of love. Do you ever get tempted to think that way even about yourself? Maybe God doesn't love me because he doesn't work the same way with me as with others. No. Yes, he works a limited way. It's his wisdom. But it isn't his love or lack of love. Does that make sense? And I think there's two other lessons for us to take away as Christians from this story. Number one, Christ is not this way for us because some teachers teach that this story is an example for us of prevailing prayer. You know, this is how we should pray to Jesus. You know, we should pray to him, and if he doesn't answer us, we should just keep praying and praying because eventually he'll give us the answer. This is not so. This is a specific incidence of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry and God's plan. Jesus does not treat his children like this. If anything, what we can learn from this is if Jesus was willing to heal this outsider, how much more will he be willing to answer the prayers of his own children? So let me suggest, this is not a, you know, when you pray, don't think of this story, except that you can think of it, well, if he answered her prayer, how much more should he answer someone whom he's not ignoring? The door is open now, brothers and sisters, and the gospel has been preached into all the world. Whoever believes is invited in there is no hesitation on God's part with us. 
What that means is, however, if God doesn't answer your prayer, it has absolutely nothing to do with him not listening to you, but in his wisdom he says no for our good. This is so important, isn't it? Because we can get into these naive understandings that, well, because you're a Christian now and God loves you and he cares for you and, and the door's open, he's, he's going to answer your prayers, everything you, everything you ask for he'll say yes to. And if he doesn't say yes, then we're tempted to think he's not caring. No. We need to change the way we think. And everything we think about God needs to be governed and informed by his love that he's revealed to us in Christ at the cross. The second thing we can learn from this story is that affliction is often a blessing because this woman's daughter's sickness led her, or even worse than sickness or demon possession, led her to Christ and to this remarkable experience. And J.C. Ryle says this wonderful thing. I think it's good for us all to think about. Health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if it leads us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. You see? Wow, that's quite the statement, isn't it? <laughs> Health is good, but sickness is better. Amazing. The last thing we want to look at this morning is I'd like us to see that just as the first feeding of the 5,000, or rather the 10,000, was a symbol of Christ giving his flesh for the life of the world, so the second feeding of the 4,000, or around 10,000, also symbolizes the same truth. After this amazing inc incident with this woman, you'll see that Jesus returns to Galilee and he's thronged by the Jewish crowds. And notice the difference. No hesitation, right? The Greek says they are literally throwing the sick down at his feet. You see that in verse uh, 30? cast them down, that is literally, they're, they're, they're throwing them at his feet. You know, maybe there's, it's so crowded, they want to get sick people to, maybe they're picking up sick people and just throwing them over the crowd or what, I don't know, but there, there, there's a rush towards Jesus and there's no hesitation on Jesus' part whatsoever to heal. He heals them all, whatever their sickness may be. This, this truly symbolizes how it is today with salvation. Because the gospel is an invitation to all men to come unto Christ. And whoever comes to Christ, Jesus accepts and saves. There's no hesitation on Jesus' part. Anyone who comes to Christ by faith, you realize you're a sinner and you come to him and say, Lord, please save me. There's no hesitation. You throw yourself down at Jesus' feet and he heals you. And sadly, however, Though this crowd was impressed with the miracles and they were seeking physical healing, most of this crowd failed to believe the message of Jesus regarding righteousness and their eternal salvation. And as so it is that most people in this world, sadly, are concerned more for their physical well-being than for their spiritual well-being. They'll go to great lengths to get themselves healed physically. They'll go to almost no lengths to make sure that their soul is safe. Isn't it amazing how we go to the doctor every now and again just... just just give me a checkup so I know I'm okay, right? I just want to make sure everything is okay. I got, a, I got a little pain in my back leg. I just want to go to the doctor and make sure that everything is okay, right? And the doctor says, everything's okay. Don't worry about it. Oh, good. We want to make sure we're well, don't we? But how many of us are as earnest about our own souls? And you might notice, you know, something, I don't, there's, there's something wrong in my soul. 
I feel guilty. I feel lost. I feel unsure. How many run then and investigate and look into it and say, is my soul okay? My soul is the most important thing, more important than my physical well-being. People are like this because they don't know the danger that they're in. They don't know the need that they have. They don't see what is truly critical. Let me encourage you, if you have the slightest doubt about your eternal soul, then be like someone who has a small pain in their body and goes to the doctor. Investigate, find out, make sure that you are at peace with God. Make sure that you've had your sins forgiven. You know, of all the, of all the feelings that we ever read that Jesus experienced in the, in the Gospels, compassion is the one that we hear most about. We hear him obviously get angry. We hear him get sorrowful. But compassion is the one we hear most about. I think God wants us to see that Jesus is compassionate and that God is compassionate. God is gracious and merciful, full of loving kindness and forgiveness. Happy is the person who knows this and puts their trust in God. And brothers and sisters, if Christ has compassion for men's physical needs, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm considering them, they're probably hungry and I don't want to send them away. If he has compassion for our physical needs, how much more will he have compassion for the truly real need that we have? The need of salvation. Our spiritual need. The Bible tells us God is compassionate towards us and cares about our real need. For Jesus himself said that God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said that he is sent by God as the true bread from heaven that gives life to the whole world. Just like people need to eat or they die, you need Jesus or you die eternally. And just like here how he took the bread and broke it and gave thanks... At the Last Supper, Jesus took bread and broke it. He gave thanks to God and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. For the remission of sins. The whole reason he came into the world was to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Because this is our greatest need. And on the cross, Jesus suffered for our sins. He suffered, we can hardly even know what it means to truly suffer for sins, but he did so that we could be forgiven, so that you could be forgiven. You aren't a, just a faceless blob in God's mind, brothers and sisters. But before the foundation of the world, God had a plan and you are involved in it. You individually are involved in his plan. And God loved you. When we say that God loves the world, that's not a blob. What is the world but you and I that make it up, the parts of the whole? He saw you and he loved you and he cared about you and he doesn't want you to perish. And so he acted and he gave his life for us, sinners who deserve damnation, destruction, because we're selfish, unloving, worthy of death. God loved us. When Jesus breaks bread here and gives it to the crowd, it would not be long before he would die 
and after his death and resurrection, according to God's timing and plan, salvation, or the bread of life, was to be preached to all the world, a feast for the whole world. And whoever eats of the bread of life, by simply believing in him, will be saved. And just like on this day, they passed around the baskets of bread, so it is today that the bread of life is literally passed before you, and you're hungry, and you need it. And the bread of life is passed before you and say, here, this is from God because he cares about you and he doesn't want you to faint. Eat it. And every person needs to choose whether they will let that bread pass before them and die of spiritual starvation or whether like that day they would take the bread that Jesus provided and eat. So the question is, will you believe in Christ and be saved? Have you believed in Christ? And have you been saved? Or will you let it pass by? God loves you. He loves the whole world. And he wants you to be saved. So don't be like the proud and the unbelieving. The Jews who rejected Jesus because they refused to acknowledge their guilty condition before God. They took refuge in their own self-righteousness. Don't be like them, but rather be like this Canaanite woman who recognized her lowly place. I am outside. I am guilty. I am worthy of death. And receive from God the feast of feasts which he desires to give to you. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed by your plan. Help us to see, Lord, that you created this world with an eternal purpose. That this world is not random. It's not godless. And that we have an amazing part in your plan. And that when you created this world, you saw us and you loved us and you died for us. And you invite us in to your kingdom and to eternal life. Lord, help us not to miss this and help us not to be wrapped up in things that don't even matter. Things of this earth that pass away. Thank you that Matthew wrote these things so we could be invited in and eat the bread of life and know your will and our part in this world. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for the free gift. And thank you that you loved us and died for us and that your blood makes us right with you. Lord, if there's anyone here who's not certain about their soul, may this day be the day that they eat and find out that once they eat of you, they need to hunger no more. And Lord, I thank you for everyone here who has eaten. And I pray that you would encourage them today with your love and with the fact that they have eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray.